Welcome to the Austin Stone. It's good to be with you, church. My name is Halim Sah. I serve as one of the pastors and elders here at the Stone. We're back in the book of Exodus today. We've been working our way through this second book of the Bible for about two months now. And we're going to be in Exodus chapters 11 and 12 today and deal with the last plague, the 10th plague, and also the Passover. The book of Exodus, what is it all about? What is the book of Exodus all about? I think the simplest way that we can say it is that the book of Exodus is about salvation. It's about salvation. I think more than anything, the book of Exodus exists to teach us about our salvation. And so if you've ever wondered, what is this salvation all about? What is the salvation that God's given me? Why did I need to be saved? How was it that I was saved? What did it cost God for me to be saved? You need to go to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is a story about God's people living in the devastation and slavery and bondage in Egypt and how God comes to them to rescue them and to give them salvation. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul tells us that this story that happened 4,000 years ago was written down for us. For you and I, it was written down for us and as an example for us, as a parallel to our story of how God rescues us from our slavery to bondage of sin and death, just as God saved the Israelites from their bondage in Egypt. And so as we continue to work our way through the book of Exodus, we should be seeing a parallel to our story. And the parallel that we're going to be seeing today is this, the price of our salvation. The price of our salvation. Our salvation wasn't free. It wasn't free. It was freely offered to us, right? But it wasn't free to God. He had to pay something. What did it cost God for our salvation? What did it cost God to set free the Israelites from their bondage and slavery in Egypt? And what did it cost God to set us free and give us salvation from the bondage of sin and death? That's what we're going to be looking at today. We've been mostly, most recently looking at the plagues. The plagues exist to show us the depth of the price that needed to be paid for our salvation. See, the plague wasn't the price that God was paying. The plagues exist to show us the depth of the price that needed to be paid if there's going to be salvation. What we have to understand about the plagues is that it's not as though God is sending a plague in trying to get Pharaoh to obey him and let his people go free, and then it doesn't work, and so he has to send another plague and then another plague and so on. Instead, what God was doing was he's, he was systematically overthrowing all the gods of Egypt. And in doing so, he was revealing the depth of their sin and rebellion before God. See, the Egyptians had a God for just about everything. And so, as God turned the Nile into blood, he was showing his power over the Egyptian god of the Nile named Hapi. As he brought the frogs, gnats, and flies, he was overthrowing the Egyptian god of earth, Seb, and the Egyptian god of the flies, Uachit. As he brought disease on Egyptian cattle, he was overthrowing the Egyptian gods of bulls and cows, Ta, Nebus, Hathor, and Amon. 
As he brought boils, he was overthrowing Sekhmet, the Egyptian goddess of epidemics, Serapis and Imhotep, the Egyptian gods of healing. As he brought hail and destroyed all the crops of Egypt, he was overthrowing Nut, the Egyptian sky goddess, Isis and Seth, the Egyptian agricultural gods. As he brought locusts, he was overthrowing Serapia, the Egyptian deity that was supposed to protect them from locusts. When he brought the plagues of darkness, he was overthrowing Ra, the Egyptian god of the sun. That might be the only one you've ever heard of. And so you see, these weren't arbitrary things that God was trying out. God wasn't like, man, the frogs didn't work. Surely thought the frogs would work. And then he sends the gnats. That's not what he's doing. Through the nine plagues, God had a plan to systematically overthrow all the gods of Egypt. And through the plagues, he was showing the wrath of people in sin and rebellion against him deserve. Exodus 10, 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. That you may know that I am the Lord. Why was God doing all these things, sending all these plagues? That you may know that I am the Lord. You see, what we have to understand about the Israelites is that they were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Think about that. They were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that we learned about in Genesis, he was just the bedtime story. He was just the bedtime story. Think about living in a land, serving a people for 400 years. What does that mean? That means for everyone that's alive, slavery was all that they knew. And think about the temptation that they must have felt in their hearts as they looked at all the Egyptian prosperity. Think about the temptation that they must have felt as they looked at all the Egyptian power, wealth, right? And the temptation that they must have felt to themselves bow down and start worshiping these Egyptian gods that have made their masters prosper so much. And so it might be with us. And so it might be with us. You're a Christian, and so you come to church, and you sing songs, and you listen to sermons, and then you hear something challenging as the Bible is being taught about how Christians ought to live. And then you feel guilty because you're not living that way, and then you go and you try to change something, right? But then you fail, and then you come back and hear some other challenging thing. And that type of living might be on repeat for years. But the truly tempting thing for you is seeing how your roommate is living, seeing how your boss is living. What's really tempting is looking at your neighbor down the street. They don't believe in God. They don't claim to be Christians. They sleep in on Sundays. They feel no need or responsibility to follow some book written thousands of years ago. And here's the kicker. They seem to be happy. They seem to be happy. They're just free to live the way that they want without having to deal with feelings of guilt of disobeying this God that they don't even believe in, right? And so can you relate with the Israelites at all here? And so what was God doing through the plagues? As he was systematically overthrowing all these gods, right? What was he doing? He was overthrowing all the gods that the Israelites were so tempted to bow down and worship themselves. 
He was liberating their hearts to see that he alone was God, that the God of their bedtime stories indeed was real. He alone is the creator of heavens and the earth, and he sovereignly rules over everything and anyone that dwells in them. And so one of the parallels that we ought to be seeing is that we're no different than the Egyptians. We're really not that different from our unbelieving friends and coworkers and neighbors. John Calvin once said that the heart of man is a perpetual factory of idols. That the heart of man is a perpetual factory of idols. And so you and I, we may not be bowing down to some hand-carved statues like the Egyptians were. We may not claim to be unbelievers and and decide we're not going to uh, obey the Bible at all, right? We may not be doing those things, but make no mistake, you and I are still guilty of idolatry. We might be Christians, but we still worship idols in our hearts. We make gods out of our careers, the position of power that it gives us, the money that it pays us. We make gods out of our children. We bow down to their every whim and desire. We try to live vicariously through them. We make gods out of each other, desperately wanting so-and-so's approval, desperately wanting so-and-so to pay, pay us attention, to like us. You see, idols aren't necessarily bad things or evil things. Your career, your children, other people, these aren't bad or evil things. They're good things. But good things become idols when we make them into our ultimate things. Good things turn into idols when we make them into our our ultimate things. An idol is anything besides God that we turn to and say, unless I can have that, I won't be happy. Unless I can accomplish that, then life won't be worth living. That's an idol. And so seeing how God dealt with idolatry through the plagues, it helps us realize that oftentimes when bad things happen in our lives, things that we would read as disastrous in our lives, whether it's you losing your job, whether it's you having to go through some sickness, whether it's your boyfriend breaking up with you, oftentimes, I'm not saying every time, God may have some other purpose, but oftentimes when God bring these, brings these bad things into our lives, it's not arbitrary He has a specific purpose, and that purpose could be that he's overthrowing some idol out of your heart, right? And so a question that we can ask ourselves next time something bad happens is, what idol is God trying to liberate you from? What what idol, what God that you've created in your own heart is he trying to set you free from worshiping in order to show you that he alone is God? One more plague remained. So now let's go to the text and look at the significance of the last plague, the tenth plague. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Verse 4. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. What can we learn from the 10th plague? 
Well, there are some things about this last plague that makes it stand out apart from the rest of the plagues. The first thing we learn from the 10th plague is that the word of God cannot be refused endlessly. The word of God cannot be refused endlessly. The 10th plague is that every firstborn in the land of Egypt is going to die. And God says when this happens, then finally Pharaoh is going to let God's people go. Right? So you see, through the nine plagues, one after another, Pharaoh refused to obey God's command. But what the tenth plague is showing us is that the word of God cannot be refused endlessly. There always has to come an end. As horrific as the nine plagues were, there came a true day of reckoning. Right? As terrible as all the nine plagues were, there came a true day of judgment in which it was too late to go back. Too late to take it all back. And it says it will cause a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as the Bible says there has never been nor ever will be again. The tenth plague serves as a warning to us when we're tempted to think that obeying God's word doesn't really matter. You think to yourself, my roommate, my coworker, they don't give a rip about God or obeying him, right? But they're fine, right? You look at their lives and you think, There are no consequences. I try to obey God with everything. And they don't obey. There seems to be no consequences. And in some ways, they seem happier than me. Right? What the tenth plague is showing us is that God is slow to anger and is patient with us and is patient with the way that he deals with the world. He doesn't immediately jump to the tenth plague. Right? But make no mistake, that day of the tenth plague is coming. That day when you will be able to see that God's word cannot be refused endlessly, and that there is a day of distinguishing that's coming. The second thing we learn from the 10th plague is that no one is exempt from God's judgment. No one is exempt from God's judgment. Verse 5 says, From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl will die. Right? What this is showing us is that no amount of power or prestige or position, that's Pharaoh, right? No amount of power or prestige or position in this world can save you from God's judgment and and no amount of suffering and hardships experienced in this world. That's the slave girl, right? And no amount of suffering and, and hardships experienced in this world will exempt you from God's judgment. When it comes to sin, there's a universal guilt that makes everyone deserving of God's wrath. There's none who seeks God, not even one, the Bible says. So do you see how the plagues are showing us the depth of our guilt, the depth of the price that needs to be paid if there's going to be salvation? But what about the Israelites, you might ask? Look at verse 7. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Well, the Israelites sure seem to be exempt, right? But I thought everyone was guilty. If we stop the story right here in verse 7, if we're tempted to come to the conclusion that Egypt is bad, Israel is good, therefore the judgment of death will come upon Egypt, but not Israel. But is that really the case? Let's go to Exodus 12. Lots of text. Verse 1. 
The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And he tells them that the lamb needs to be without blemish, a male that's a year old. He tells them to kill their lambs at twilight. Verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Verse 22. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. And so do you see this? If the Israelites were exempt, why would they have to do anything? Right? If the Israelites were truly exempt, God would come through and kill all the firstborn of Egypt and Israel would be safe. Right? If the Israelites were exempt, why did they have to go through the business of picking a lamb, killing a lamb, putting the blood on the doorpost? See, the purpose that the blood of the lamb served was to show the Israelites that they too were bad guys. They too were bad guys. It wasn't Egypt bad and Israel good. They were both bad. And remember how we talked about the, how the Israelites would have been tempted to bow down and worship the gods of Egypt? Well, they weren't just tempted. They actually fell into that temptation and they worshiped the gods of Egypt. Well, how do we know? In the book of Joshua, this is after the Israelites have been set free from Egypt. Joshua is leading the Israelites to commit afresh to obey and worship God. And he says to them in Joshua 24, verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. What did their fathers do in Egypt? They worshiped and served the gods of Egypt. And so do you see, when it came to sinning against an infinitely holy God by worshiping other gods, both the Egyptians and the Israelites stood equally guilty. But up until this point, the Israelites might have thought that what distinguished them from Egypt, the reason why the Egyptian livestock was killed, but not theirs. The reason why hail fell upon the crops of Egypt, but not theirs, was because there was something about them that made them exempt from God's divine judgment. But look at verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Right? When I see the blood, I will pass over you. It doesn't say, and when I see you, I will pass over you. Right? It doesn't say, oh, when I see that, oh, it's you. I'm going to pass over you. It doesn't say when I see how good you are, I'm going to pass over you. It doesn't say when I see how smart you are or how obedient you've been to my commands, I will pass over you. It says when I see the blood, I will pass over you. 
And so, yes, God will make a distinction between Egypt and Israel, and not even a dog will growl against Israel, as he said. But the distinction, but the distinction is not because Egypt is bad and Israel is good, right? When you and I think of on that judgment day, what will distinguish us, right? It can't be because you're thinking because they're bad and I'm good. That's not the case. The distinction is based solely on the covering of the blood of the lamb. The distinction is based solely on God's sovereign choice, his election in choosing to cover the Israelites with the blood of the Passover lamb. There was something that set apart the tenth plague from the rest of the plagues. The tenth plague was the only plague where God said, about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt, right? It's the only plague where he says, I myself will go out in the midst of Egypt. Now, all the plagues were from God, all of them. But the previous nine plagues came by some agent of nature, right? The frogs came, the gnats came, the flies came. But this is the only plague that stands alone with God saying, I myself will come down. And God himself coming down changes everything. When God, the Lord, the absolute judge of all the earth, when he himself comes down, that changes everything. See, before he came down, the Israelites could find some confidence, some trust in comparative righteousness at least, right? Yes, I have some statues in my house that I've been worshiping them, but I worship God too, right? Some comparative righteousness that they could find some confidence in, but when God himself comes down, their righteousness is but filthy rags to him. Right? There's coming a day when God himself will come down. And all the confidence that you, you and I might have found in some comparative righteousness will completely disappear. But God provided the way to be safe and to be saved from his wrath. He said, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you. Now we have to ask the inevitable question of how the blood of the lamb could possibly have had such dramatic powers that it could turn the Lord away from such judgment. What is it about the lamb? What is it about the blood? And now church, listen. This is the place right here. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, this is a dangerous place. Because this is a place where you could be thinking, oh yeah, the blood of the lamb. I see it. That's the blood of Jesus. It's only by the blood of Jesus that I'm saved. It's only by the blood of Jesus that I'm forgiven. I see it. Can we pray and go home now? Right? I'm not coming down on you. This isn't some passive-aggressive way to try to get you to pay attention to the rest of the message. I get it because as I was preparing the message, I felt that way. I felt like, okay, I know that. And I think most of our people know that. Right? Can I talk about something else? Is this message boring? Right? It's just the gospel at the end of the day. I feel like our people know the gospel, right? But then I felt so convicted by the Holy Spirit that I could take the greatest news that the world could ever hear, that I could read about the greatest thing that God has ever done, ever done in saving his people and saving you and me and think, I know that. We know that. Can we talk about something else more interesting? And so I try to think fresh upon what's happening here and put myself in the shoes of these Israelites. I hope you'll do the same right now. Some incredible things have been happening. The God that I've heard of only in my bedtime stories has shown up, 
And he said, I'm going to set you and your family free from slavery. 400 years in slavery. Slavery is all I've known. Slavery is all my parents have known. And the God that I've heard of only in my bedtime stories has come. And he said, I'm going to set you free. And then he's sending incredible acts of disaster and epidemics upon Egypt for not obeying him, for worshiping and serving other gods, right? But somehow, the same judgments are not falling on me and my family. But I have the same statues. I have the same statues in my house. I've been worshiping them for years. And then I hear that there's going to be one more plague and that this time God himself is going to come down. Church, that day when God himself is going to come down is going to happen again. It's going to happen again. The day of the Lord, the Bible calls it. That day is coming. And when that day comes, what do you think will distinguish you from anyone else? The fact that you're good and other people are bad? What do you think will distinguish you? Why should you have any confidence that God's wrath will not fall on you? You worship the same gods in your heart. God told the Israelites, sacrifice the lamb and put the blood on the doorpost and stay in the house. Don't come out. What's he saying? He's saying, trust in the blood. Trust in the blood. The blood is the only thing that can save you from my wrath. He's saying, when I see the blood, not when I see there's something good and special about you. Right? That goes against everything the world tells us. When I see the blood, not when I see that you've made it to church most Sundays, not when I see that you've been giving, not when I see that you've been reading your Bible, not when I see that you've been fruitful in ministry. All these things that you and I might try to find some sort of confidence in. On that day, I'll be fine. Why? Because look at all this stuff that I've been doing. Right? Look at all these good things in my life. But when I see the blood, God says, nothing else will save you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. When you die and that day of judgment comes, what will you trust in? What will you trust in? Why should God save you? Don't you see we're just as guilty as anyone and everyone else. Why should God save you? If you place your trust in anything else but the blood of the lamb, it's the same as you coming out of that house that night. And you will face the eternal wrath of God. And let's talk about one more thing that we might put our trust in. One more thing, because I think it's a tricky one. We might find confidence in the quality of our faith. We might find confidence in the quality of our faith. In other words, when we're asking that question on that day, why will I be safe? Right? You might be thinking, well, because I believe. Look how much I believe. Right? Look at the strength of my faith. Look how much I believe in God. But I want you to think about this with me. I think when the Israelites received the instructions to sacrifice the lamb, after they put the blood on the doorposts, I think they entered their houses that night, some with great faith and some with little faith. I think that night as the destroyer, as God was moving from house to house, I think some were taking shelter under the blood thinking, this is awesome. This is amazing. I knew God would come through. I knew God would provide a way, right? And I think others took shelter under the blood thinking, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. He's going to kill me. He's going to kill me, right? But what happened? What happened? They were equally saved. They were equally saved. Strong faith, weak faith, but they were equally saved. Why? Why? 
because God saved them apart from the quality of their faith. It wasn't the quality or the amount of their faith that saved them. It was the object of their faith that saved them. It was the strength of the blood that saved them, not the strength of their faith. And so do you see how subtly even us trusting in the strength of our own faith is taking away from the strength of the thing that's actually saving you, the blood of Jesus? It was by the lamb dying as a substitute for God's people. It was by the blood of the lamb that the Israelites were saved. If both the Israelites and the Egyptians were guilty, right? If both were guilty, in order for God to be just, and we know that he is, in order for God to be just, he should require the death of the firstborn from both houses, right? From both houses. Well, don't you see the death of the lamb represented the death of the firstborn. The death of the lamb represented the death of the true firstborn. And in a way, you can say that the entire Bible is pointing us, talking to us about the lamb that is pointing us to Jesus, the true firstborn son. Back in Genesis, when God commanded Abraham to sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac, remember that? Isaac was ultimately saved as God provided a substitute sacrifice. In Genesis, God provided one lamb for one person. In Genesis, God provided one lamb for one person, Isaac. And here in Exodus, at the first Passover, each Israelite household was provided a lamb. The Israelites too were guilty and deserved death, but God again provided a substitute sacrifice. This time, one lamb for one family. One lamb for one family. And in the rest of the Old Testament, God commands his people to celebrate a day called the Day of Atonement, in which God would provide a lamb in order to atone for the sins of an entire nation. One lamb for one nation of Israel. So do you guys see the progression? One lamb for one person, right? Pointing to one lamb for one family. Pointing to one lamb for one nation. All the lambs of the Old Testament pointing us to what? Pointing us to John 129 when John the Baptist sees Jesus walking towards him and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Of the world. Do you see? Do you see what God's doing? All throughout the Bible, it's been about the need of this lamb. We've been so guilty, so guilty before God that the only thing that could pay for our sin was death. Either our death or a substitute death. But what lamb could take away the sin of the world? It was the one lamb, the true son of God, Jesus And this is the gospel. There's none righteous, not even one. There's none who seeks God, not even one. Though we've been created by God, though he's given us life and breath and everything, we we didn't acknowledge him as God or give thanks. Thanks. Instead, what we did was we started to produce and invent all sorts of other gods in our own hearts and started serving and worshiping anything else but the true God. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, eternal death. And there's coming a day of judgment when God himself will come down once again. And that day too will be a day of great weeping and crying, but not just through the land of Egypt, but throughout the whole world such that there has never been nor ever will be again. That day is coming for the world. But just as God provided a lamb to die as a substitute for the Israelites, he's provided us a lamb as well. His firstborn son, Jesus, the lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, the blood of his son, was the price that God paid for our salvation. We asked that question, remember? What is the price that God paid for our salvation? The blood of his son. The blood of his son. And John tells us to behold the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Don't just think, oh yeah, it's the blood of Jesus that forgives me. It's the blood of Jesus that saves me. I know that. And move on. But behold that lamb that takes away the sin of the world. When's the last time you beheld that lamb that takes away the sin of the world? The only price by which you and I could be saved. Think about how the Israelites were saved. God made the river bleed. God made the locusts to swarm. God made the firstborn to die. And God tore apart the sea so that he could save the Israelites. And that's how you and I are saved. That's how you and I are saved. Just as he once made the river to bleed, he made his son to bleed. Just as he's caused the locusts to swarm, he caused his son's enemies to swarm around him. Just as he tore apart the sea, he tore apart his son from his presence as he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just as he killed the firstborn, he killed the true firstborn. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. To behold him means to trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. To trust that when you take Jesus' blood and put his blood on the doorpost of your life, that God will see the blood and pass over you. Not that he will see the blood plus your good works. Not that he will see the blood plus all the ways that you're really trying. Not that he will see the blood and see your anything. Only Jesus. Only the blood of Jesus. And isn't that the most liberating, freeing message, the greatest news that we could ever receive? That when God is going to save you and his divine judgment and wrath is rightly coming upon you, he only looks for the blood. Not blood plus something. Only the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood of Jesus is what you and I as Christians trust in for our salvation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great news, the gospel. And forgive us for times when we try to move on from the gospel as if there was something greater, as as if there was something better that we could love, that we could glory in, that we could find our happiness in. Lord, if we are not happy, it's because we have not thought about the gospel long enough. If we are not content and satisfied, it's because we haven't looked at the gospel long enough. Father, if we believe there is some other thing that could exist to make us happy, to make us satisfied, it's because we have not contemplated the preciousness of of the blood of your son long enough. And so, Father, we ask that you would do that. Father, that it would not just be this time in which we were able to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but that it would be a daily, regular exercise of a people that have been saved by the blood of your Son alone. Father, not to anything else do we take shelter. Not to anything else do we find our confidence and trust. Only the blood of Jesus. Thank you that you have provided it. In Jesus' name we pray.